Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What is up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony. And this is James. And today we're going to be doing an episode on Birdman and The Revenant, both directed by Alejandro Iñárritu. And we actually have a special guest today, Santiago Achaga, who is a South American actor, filmmaker, director. So, Santiago, why don't you introduce yourself, tell everyone about your background and where you're from. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me here. Of course. This is amazing. Um, yeah, well, actually, um, I'm an actor, as you said, and a director. I've been um, living all around the world lately. From the last four years, I've been in Argentina, Mexico, um, Colombia, New York. So I've been acting in shows with uh, Nickelodeon and Televisa and sometimes uh, USA movies, thank God. Uh, <laughs> so it's been quite experience. Now I have the lucky to be directing music videos mostly um, for Camilo, which is the number one Latin American artist right now. Um, if you haven't heard him or listened to it uh, lately, go check it out. It's amazing. <laughs> and uh, probably the last four videos that he had, um, I've been directing it with his wife, El Luna. So if you haven't seen it, check it out. Awesome. Well, congratulations on your success, and I'm sure you're going to have a lot more after this. And you're also a huge film buff, and that's one of the reasons why we connected. You watch our show, and you hit us up, right. and we're so glad to have you on here. And uh, let's talk about Alejandro Inurito and what he means to you as a filmmaker. Um, I think he's easily one of the most talented directors working today. I mean, this guy won back-to-back Oscars for Best Director with both these movies. They came out in 2014 for Birdman, 2015 in Revenant. So this guy's talent is exceptional. That's only happened three times in history. For directors, I think yeah. it's only happened for actors twice, too. Yeah. With Tom Hanks and someone mm-hmm. else. And uh, Spencer Tracy did it. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. I, di- I didn't know that. I-, I love that from you guys because you have so, <laughs> so many fun facts. Um, that's why I listen to this podcast. Now, this is why I'm, I'm, I'm a part of it. Uh, actually, I've been doing my research and I have a lot of... Um, Fun facts to share nice. along. Um, Happy to hear that's that. what the that's fans love. And the thing with Inuritu, <laughs> he actually intended to make The Revenant first, but that was delayed because DiCaprio signed on to do Wolf of Wall Street because he does whatever Scorsese is doing because they have that connection as filmmaker and actor. And so Inuritu, he had Birdman in development for years. And so while DiCaprio was making Wolf in 2013, he, yeah, right? he made Birdman while he was waiting for DiCaprio's schedule to free up so he can make Revenant. He's like, I'll casually make one of the most intricate and <laughs> complex film movies of all time in, in the time I'm waiting for Leo to finish Wolf of Wall Street. It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> and what I love about Inuritu is he's part of this, I, you could saw a trifecta of Del Toro and Cuaron. Uh, they came up together. They a, a few of them went to school together. And there are three filmmakers that I think have defined the Mexican voice in American uh, cinema. And they have made a huge impact on cinema for right now. Absolutely. Totally. Um, well, ac- actually, it's 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 fun because I think... Um, a lot of people get the recognition to Iñárritu with Bearman came out, so I think that was a good um, a good background for him, like to to do the Revenant, you know, because it was one of the probably the hardest movies to make ever, you know, like oh yeah, the, the 
the the nature like they had to travel all the time natural lighting so they had no time it's it's quite crazy um and i think the recognition and and all the, those awards that he deserved with berman i think that was a, a good um thing to say like okay you you're fine you can do this crazy movie <laughs> you know yeah, kinda, and yeah. win another oscar yeah, yeah it kind of sure. introduced him more to american audiences i think and global audiences he did uh babel which and, is fantastic in 21 grams yeah right yeah and so those movies were great but not as hugely popular as birdman was and then the revenant which are now iconic films and mm-hmm. it kind of just exploded him on this platform internationally as a filmmaker maybe not a lot of people had heard of him before like 2013 2014 but after winning back-to-back oscars your name is synonymous for history with history yeah and something that he's implemented in his filmmaking with these two films especially which del toro has always used is the the use of magic symbolism and magic realism where he adds the surrealist um magical elements to his films especially in birdman um and there's a lot of it actually in the revenant as well we'll talk about um and it's uh it's something that came to prominence in mexican cinema and just latin american cinema over the last few decades of adding that magic realism to movies that were being filmed to be very realistic but then adding that magical element makes it feel uh, incredible in terms of the storytelling the best way to support raiders of the lost podcast is become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast. You'll get perks like personalized messages, personalized videos, our podcast schedules for upcoming episodes. Top tier patrons get a monthly shout out on the podcast. And you'll also be entered into monthly monthly giveaway contests for only patrons. Head on over to our new website, RaidersoftheLostPodcast.com to check out all of our sources of content, our merch, and custom movie posters. Yeah, and I think the cinematography of both films are kind of add to that magical element too where Birdman obviously is the illusion of that entire continuous one take whereas the Revenant there are scenes like that like the opening battle where the retribe comes and attacks the fur traders that's has that same aesthetic of a long take but at Birdman there's actually 16 visible cuts in the film versus Revenant there are obviously clearly probably hundreds of cuts in that movies but both elements are part of his style which if you could talk about with uh, with Koran too, he has that style of like long takes. Like Children of Men is one of my favorite movies of all time. That has probably the most incredible long take I've ever seen in my life. I, I love this um, really long takes. I think that I think that's one of his most iconic things that you can recognize him right. Like this big um, lenses, like wide angles, um, white, white lenses, and 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 like this long takes. But also like if you can like you can tell the difference between one and the other. Like, for an example, you have, like, it's the same style, but in Burma, you have these long hallways, right? And a lot of dialogue. Like, everything is going on all the time. And you can feel the pressure of this guy. You can feel um, how he's between two walls and between, like, the, all the, the, the opinions of, of other people and how he is carrying this weight of, of doing this right. And in the other hand, you have like this wide angles, but it's totally the opposite. It's like him against nature. And that's it. Like he's in the middle of nowhere and it feels so different, right? It's, it's, it's kind of the same technique. He's, um, it's totally his, his own technique. Um, but it, it, I, I love how he can work between that technique in, 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 in this two different movies and it feels so different one from the other you know yeah those wide lenses he uses a master as a wide lens which is not it's kind of unusual for a big hollywood production like this and it makes it feel that ultra realism makes it feel like you're there because you know that's what real life looks like to us with human eyes these wide lenses and then these long takes and also it's just incredible to see 
those wide lenses to create create this like POV kind of feeling for an audience member where you feel like you're there with Hugh Glass suffering in the wilderness and you also feel like you're there with all these actors behind behind the scenes of this Broadway production walking through these hallways and like even the claustrophobic feeling that we get throughout the film Birdman is the the camera kind of gets closer and closer into Riggins character with this wide shot and you just feel like you're him at sometimes it makes you feel his anxiety and yeah. his stress and and the combination of the wide lens that Emmanuel Lubezki likes to use he likes to bring it close to the actors' faces, and that it'll, it kind of warps the image in a little bit. It, it kind of, especially, it happens with DiCaprio a lot, and it happens a few shots in in Birdman, where when you bring a wide lens and bring it close to the subject, the 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 subject will kind of the look of them will warp a little bit, and I think that adds to the effect that he's trying to convey in terms of what the character is experiencing. And there are so many shots in The Revenant where most of the image is out of focus because it's not a macro lens. So when you put it up to the close to the image, most of it's going to be out of focus and blurry. And Leo's breathing on the camera sometimes. Exactly. So he makes you aware of the yeah. lens in a lot of ways and making you aware of the lens. Um, also, they allow things like water and blood to pour onto the lens. So there will be droplets of water or blood on it. And that kind of takes you out of the, the film experience. It kind of makes you feel even more like you're there documentary style, like you're actually watching it being filmed. That's so that adds, that adds to the realism as well. Yeah. I love I love that when the bear breathes near to the camera that because that's mm -hmm. such an important moment right I, I don't want to I don't want to uh, skip ahead no, that's fine but go I, ahead it, it, <laughs> but at that moment it's it's such a moment when you totally feel that you are there and 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 when the bear is so close to the camera that he breathes and then everything steam it's like oh so that's probably how he feels right it's um, visceral yeah it feels I mean like it, you can there. kind yeah. of feel the breath but I think that. Lubeski learned the lesson from that from Children of Men. There's that long take when when Clive Owen's character is trying to save the the woman. I can't remember her name, um, and he's traveling through that war zone, and um, a soldier near next to him gets shot, and the blood pours onto the lens. And that was a real effect. They actually had a real blood effect on that soldier, and it wasn't supposed to hit the lens. And so they thought maybe we might have to redo the shot or edit out the blood stain completely from the camera lens. But then Lubezki convinced Quaran to keep it in, and so he kept the, the blood stain on the lens for most of the shot, and they slowly, as that shot continues, they, sh they slowly digitally erase droplets here and there so that by the end of that shot, it's completely gone. But Lubezki convinced Quaran it, it's more, it has a more powerful effect if you can actually see the blood on the lens because it makes you feel like you're right there with Clive Owen. Yeah, that actually make, makes me think of two things. The first one is obviously Emmanuel Lubezki is one of the best cinematographers alive, and he also won back-to-back -back Oscars for best cinematography. Three in a row. So he did, because what did he do else? <laughs> that's, that's insane. Yeah, three in a row. <laughs> that's totally what, insane. What's the other one he won for? Um... Oh, what is it? Gravity? Gravity. Gra oh, yeah, 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 you're right. So Gravity, yeah. Birdman, Revenant. That's incredible. And also yeah. he does Terrence Malick's film, so he's visually one of my favorite cinematographers out there. And also how you brought up that the the long take and he learned his lesson about to keep that effect if it if splatter or something or debris falls onto the lens. That also applies to how hard and difficult it is to shoot these kinds of movies in the style of these long takes, whereas when you're on a regular movie set, you're doing hundreds of takes with different camera angles. But think about the way you film Birdman, especially where it looks like one long take, but it's really 16 takes. You have a cast and crew that you have to hide behind the camera. You can't really mess up in takes because you can't go into edit. You can't edit these takes after in post-production. You have to get every scene shot in one take, and you have to nail it every single time. So just the choreography, not of just the actors to, to know their beats and blocking with in, in concurrence with their lines and dialogue but behind the camera we have crew members we have camera we have audio guys we have lighting guys and throughout the the filming they're 
as the camera moves around the sets, they're moving the lights, they're moving the audio gear, they're moving all of them behind them. So it's it's a it's a wild and super complicated style of filmmaking that it results in amazing films, but I'm sure it's so complicated and stressful to do. Yeah. So I think people who actually um, been in, in movie sets, right, and and know how hard it's to do a movie because um, it's it's really hard, even when you're cutting, even when you have to do a two pages thing, right? Um, it's it's complicated and it's stressful, and everything you do, it's a decision, and it's like a choreography, right? It's a dance, but this is another type of dance. This is like this is a. I, I don't even know how to explain it. Like, if you want to do a two, three minutes um, long shot, it's so hard. Like, I've been thinking the whole movie. Poor guy, the first day see the one, the 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 focus pull, the the pull, the um, focus puller. Is that focus puller? Yeah, focus, focus puller. Yeah, focus puller. Yeah, yeah. It's the hardest job. Poor guy. He, he <laughs> must, he, yeah, he must be so stressed because you can fix a lot of things in post, but focus. That's yeah. that's not one of them. So he, if he screwed up, like. That was it. The you know? focus puller um, is the unsung hero of these movies, for, for sure. sure. Totally, Absolutely. totally. Just the cast, the crew itself, just be able to work with the directors on this vision. And, like, just imagine filming Birdman again. You're in these small sets. You're walking through these hallways, and you have a t- probably 15 people behind the camera. So the complexity of it is absurd. And I, But it does result in amazing results. Yeah, and Birdman, they, it wasn't a set they built that was the actual theater in New York on Broadway. So it wasn't like they built in hallways that were... Usually there are false walls and doors, so you can just build a wall and remove it to put a camera in it. But with this, they just worked within the confines of the actual building inside New York. So that was that made it even harder to film. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. Breaking news, Manscaped has just released their brand new 4.0 lawnmower trimmer, which is now available for purchase in the United States and Canada. It is the best club I've ever used in my life. Now I have two. I have the 3.0 and I have the 4.0, and these these are the best, and their products are being used by over 2 million men right now. Get on manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. There, They've sent us their deodorizers, their boxer briefs, their t-shirts, their colognes everything is high quality i recommend getting their performance packages it comes with a bunch of different items for a cheaper price consolidated so definitely use our coupon code at their website today for free shipping and 20 percent off raiders of the lost but do you guys want to get into birdman yeah let's get into birdman yeah yeah let's do it. which came out in 2014 written by alejandro obviously nicholas Giacca. Jacoboni, Alexander Danelaris, and Armando Bo, based on the play by Raymond Carver, starring Michael Keaton, Edward Norton, Emma Stone. Again, this one, best cinematography, best director, best picture, best original screenplay, and it follows a washed-up superhero actor who attempts to revive his fading career by writing, directing, and starring in a Broadway production. I think the most obvious thing about Birdman on the surface is the comparison and parallel to Michael Keaton in his career. Because even um, in the film, Birdman, the last Birdman, I think it was Birdman 3, was the last sequel he did. That came out in 1992, they say. And that was the year that Batman Returns came out, which is Michael Keaton's Batman sequel. The last, yeah, yeah. The last film yeah. of, of him doing Batman, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, so, and Michael Keaton, he was a very big star for the 80s and 90s, but then his career kind of took a downturn. And his before Birdman, his last leading role was in 2008. And so it was a long time before 
Uh, I think he lost his ability to lead movies in terms of audiences wanting to see him. And so this movie revived his career very much how the play eventually revives uh, Riggin in his personality and in his persona as a as an actor. Yeah, it's kind of like how when David Fincher made Gone Girl, he picked Ben Affleck because he's lived that experience of being destroyed by the media, having like a, a, a downturn in life. And then Riggin is clearly a representation of Michael Keaton's career, like you said. And also even Mike Shiner, played by Edward Norton, that's supposedly a satire on the way he works on set where he's he doesn't learn the script and he's constantly questioning the lines of the dialogue and the script and he's like kind of co-directing on set, which is probably why he wasn't he's not the Hulk anymore. That was rumored why he yeah, didn't get the Hulk. Because again. he's so hard he's yeah. hard to work with. So he's making fun of himself in a way. Then also Emma Stone, she's related to the superhero genre too, where she was in two Spider-Man movies. So I think he purposely picked actors who were in these big Hollywood superhero films to kind of critique and satire Hollywood itself in terms of losing artistic artistic vision to just sell out and make these low level low artistic massive commercial success movies just for money i think it's so important from Iñárritu that learned that i mean all of this is part of of his vision right and it's not just the fact that he could tell all the people in his crew what his vision was and doing this in just one fake one take right which is completely hard and that's so honorable and, and respectable to to be able to communicate, because that's the director job, you know, communicate and tell the, the people you're working with your vision. But also he has this idea that, well, if, if you know, like he has a lot of um, influence with uh, Foringer in Europe uh, films, such as like Godard, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I don't know that. I, I never learned the, the names in English, so I'm sorry if I say something wrong. I just say it as, <laughs> oh, as I no usually worries. say it. No worries. I just wish I could say Inorito like you. Inorito. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or Tarkovsky, you know? Like, Tarkovsky has a lot of reference in his films. And, in fact, these this two um, directors, they cast people in their films, which they have uh, similarities to the actors that are playing, you know, the, the, the characters. And I think that's amazing. That just complete his vision in another level. He's not just casting people because they're good for the role, but he's just making this whole universe. So when you go in, you can get out. That's a great reference to Tarkovsky because I feel like uh, DiCaprio's character, Hugh Glass, there are a lot of moments that remind me of Stalker, Tar- Tarkovsky's film. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially that scene in the church where he finds that like destroyed church. So there's a lot of references to that filmmaker who's a great Russian filmmaker from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And I think there's a specific reason why Alejandro used a long take for this film. Um, and I think it's not just for the gimmick, not just because it's cool to do. I think it... I think he's trying to translate what it's like to watch a stage play. Whereas if you go to a theater to watch a play, there's no cuts. It, everything unfolds before you. They're changing the sets. The actors are coming in and out of wardrobe. And so I think Alejandro wanted to translate that experience into this film for film-going audiences. When you watch a movie, it, it feels like you're watching a play because there are no cuts. Yeah, even though days pass, you know, yeah. Reagan even spends the night. He gets drunk and falls asleep on that stoop, mm-hmm. and it's the next day, and it still all looks like one long take. And it's a great effect, and he's such an interesting character because he has this, like, dual personality going on where he has, like, his inner Birdman who's trying to get him to reclaim his past and do Birdman 4 and then <laughs> telling him he's nothing without him. And, and Reagan, his life is kind of falling apart. And he thinks that this play is going to be his saving grace because he, more than anything, he's trying to pursue what he thinks what he wants is is to be respected and be a respected artist because doing the Birdman movies kind of critically, people don't take him seriously. But he, he kind of wants to be 
who Mike Shiner is on stage. Him and him and Shiner are sort of opposite characters. Whereas, as Riggin wants to be able to be a respected artist, and then Mike Shiner, his biggest fault is he can't really live outside of the stage. He can't even feel emotions off the stage. So there's sort of opposing forces in there. You could call them protagonists and antagonists if you want. I think there's a, a great story that Riggin tells, which perfectly defines what his character is. And it's that story he tells about he he has a dream where. He's in a, on a plane and he sees George Clooney up a couple of seats ahead of him, and, the, and then he imagines the plane crashing, <laughs> yeah. and then he's he he just feels disappointment because he knows the next day the paper will have a uh, on the front page the paper will have a picture of George Clooney saying uh, George Clooney dies in plane crash and Reagan won't even make the the story, and that's his biggest fear is that no one will ever remember him. I think that's the defining uh, characteristic of his character. Sorry, I think that line is so great because it's telling you a lot of information about the character and his motivation. It's not it's not giving to you like, well, I'm afraid of this to happen. It's just like in another line of text um, under it. So I think that's that's just that just explains um, in another level how good Iñárritu is. Like he in his head, it's it's so good to give the audience just a little bit of enough hints to understand it, but you can can make the puzzle together you know um another thing that i have that that i think um we're gonna get into it soon it's about this um powers that he had right that you are, are like all over the movie you the don't telekinesis know if, yeah, yeah you don't know if it's real or not <clears throat> but i think a lot of people just get stuck in the idea of if he's actually able to do it even though you have some scenes that they show that it's, he's moving everything. He's destroying um, everything. It's not telekinesis. But this idea and this metaphor about this power is something that he's the one who can see it, right? It's, it's, about his, it's about his character. He knows that he's able to do great stuff, but nobody else can see that. Yeah, and I think that's 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 a good way to see it. And then when someone else gets into the room, you see that he's not doing it because they don't see his potential. Exactly, it reminds me so much of Pan's Labyrinth, actually, by Guillermo del Toro, which we just talked about. Where is Ophelia's fairy tale real or not? It's kind of up for the audience to decide, and the filmmakers kind of put hints into whether or not it's true or or fake. And I think with Enrique with this film. All of those situations of him thinking he's doing magic or showing us that he's like closing doors or smashing stuff, he Inurito disproves it usually with a scene right afterwards, like when he's tearing apart his room and then his his partner of the play he comes in Zach Galifianakis' character, he watches him tearing it apart, so we know that he, it's actually in his mind. Then when he's flying through the city and he arrives at the theater and he walks into the door after he lands, but then a taxi driver's like, "Hey, you gotta pay me your money." Yeah. So Inurito he he disproves it in every shot of him using magic except for the open opening scene where he's floating like meditating, meditating yeah. they don't show and he doesn't disprove that and also the last shot of the film when he supposedly jumps or flies out of the window he don't he doesn't disprove that instead he shows his his daughter sam looking out for, yeah. out the window looking down and not seeing his body on the floor but then looking up and assuming we can see think that she's seeing him fly so inurito is just playing with this idea of of realism versus magic or, or subjective realism, objective realism. And it's kind of up to us to decipher whose reality we're watching. Is it is it Reagan's reality? Is it Sam's reality? Is it the audience's reality? And I think it's just a, a fun thing for us to to interpret for ourselves. Before we continue, I got to tell you about movieposters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. 
MoviePosters.com has teamed up with us to offer a very special promo code. Use Raiders15, again, Raiders15 at MoviePosters.com to get a 15% discount on your order. MoviePosters.com has pretty much every movie imaginable, all sorts of sizes, framing, backlighting, whatever you want, they got it. If you're passionate about movies, if you're passionate about television shows, there's no better way to express that than by decking your place out with a ton of movie posters. Again, use our coupon code Raiders15, again, Raiders15, to get 15% off your order at MoviePosters.com. I think also you can you can look at the the telekinesis powers as a way of Riggin trying to control his life, trying to control the world around him because he's lost control of the play, he's lost control of his career, he's lost control of his family. His his life is in disarray. And so his mental interpretation of dealing with that is him fabricating this this fantasy of using powers to control everything around him. So with that, I think that's him trying to deal with the fact that he can't control anything in his life. Yeah, I, I think the last scene, I mean, I'm not going to lie. The first time I seen it, I've been so concerned. I was like, is he flying or not? <laughs> you know, is this real? I just wanted to know. But then I break free about that idea. And I understood that it was, well, I, I, I took this metaphor all, all over the movie that he's powered. Um this telekinesis that he has is just related to his success, right? And and when he what he's able to do. And at the end, well, he he makes it. He had he's new. He he accomplished. He did the, a great. The play performance. is a success. Yeah. The play is a success. So now the daughter can see his power, right? Now the daughter can see the this ambition and this. Um, how good he he can actually be. So I think that that's the metaphor that I just took for myself. I mean, there, I, I really don't think there's a good or wrong way to take it. Right? No, I we think that's just... a I think that's a great way to look at it because if you think about that scene right before he jumps out the window, we, we see him. He's in the hospital bed, and he has a new nose. He just had surgery, and his bandage it looks like it's the beak of a bird. So it actually looks very similar to his old Birdman costume. Yeah, it's like a, the it's cowl. Like a cowl yeah. yeah, so that bird cowl. And so you can look at it as he's blended, he's combined both his success as Birdman with his uh, his his success in the play and his 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 former failure as Riggin. And so he's he's blended them together and meshed together the success of Birdman with Riggin's failure. And so you can see he's finally won. He accomplished his goal and succeeded. And so now he's become this new version of Riggin in yeah, a way. Yeah, but although he has accomplished what he wanted he wanted like the respect and the acclaim of being an artist and a and respected actor from the critics and he wanted his popularity back that he sort of lost and he and now he has this opportunity you know zach alfanakis's character is like we're gonna make a movie where this is gonna be playing all over the world this play and it kind of ties to this idea of the, the unexpected virtue of ignorance which is the alternate title to the film where although yeah. he's accomplished what he wanted his his friend's Next line of him when he's talking to him in the hospital bed, and he's not saying anything. He's like, "This is what you wanted," and then Riggin seems to be a little disappointed. Like maybe this wasn't what I wanted because why? Why isn't he super excited? But I think it's really about what he really realizes. What he truly wanted was a relationship repaired with his daughter because that's that's I think the end of the film. It shows right. the repaired relationship or a semi-repaired relationship between him and Sam. And Sam rests on his chest, and they have their first like father daughter intimate moment that we've seen on camera and so i think it's that he also gets he, he, before 
before the play ends, when during the intermission, he's talking to his wife and he he confesses to his wife his 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 wrongs and he apologizes basically and she kisses him. So he gets um, love and affection from his wife, gets love and affection from his daughter. So I think now he also has that i that approach to to life and work like Mike Shiner has, where he doesn't care what anyone thinks anymore. Where the whole film, it's so funny and ironic, where all these actors and theater people are saying they're better than people in Hollywood because they don't care what people think, but all they really do is care about what people think and what critics say about their work and their plays. And so now he's like Shiner where he truly doesn't care, and he's kind of got that blissful ignorance. I think when when I first saw that final scene, I kind of feel that he was so disappointed that he failed again. He tried to commit suicide twice, right? One in when when he goes into the sea and now he tried to do it again and he failed. He shot his nose off, but he didn't kill himself. So I think he's kind of disappointed and at the same time it's like a bittersweet sensation because he knows that he did a great performance and and now the 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 place is success. But when he stands up um, and he goes to the bathroom, we see Berman again. So he knows that he's not going to be able to take that out from his life. And he's going to be there always, um, even though now he's a, a big success. And that's something actually really interesting. When when the, sh- when the film starts, the first time you see Regan's face, because the first shot, he's um, you can see his back, right? When When you see his face in the mirror, you see his face at the same time you see the Berman sign at back. Um, so it's a, it's a good way for Iñárritu to, to tell you that there's no there's no Regan without Berman. It's no Berman without Regan. So they're like they're both one, and you know that there's going to be that um, that fight between them along the film. Yeah, he's like Regan will never Regan will never be able to escape Berman. He'll never be able to satisfy that need he has for admiration and that need he has for attention and love from other people. That will never escape him. So that's a great point right there with that metaphor. And I think the character of Sam, she's she's actually a lot more similar to Riggin than either of them would want to admit. And they're both impulsive. They both have these seem to be mental health issues where she's an, an addict. She's probably depressed at some point of her life or going through that. And Riggin clearly has dual personality disorder or something like that. But they have a lot of similarities where Sam actually has bird tattoos on her shoulder, which I think Inurito is just trying to show you right away. Like, look at this tattoo. And that connects her to Riggin with Birdman. But they also are on this path together where their repaired relationship, again, I think that's one of the most important elements for Regan's character in, in order to feel like he exists again. Because the play, you could say, and the character he's playing in that play, it's the reverse of, of himself where he's the one that was cheating on his wife and his wife caught him versus in the play, he's the person that catches his wife. And the lines that he say, says in the play are really telling of his character Riggin, where he's like, I don't exist anymore. I don't know who I am anymore. And, and that's why he wants to kill himself. Just like after he confesses to his wife about that, about why he did that, he confesses that he tried to kill himself in the ocean, but the jellyfish sh- saved him. Yeah, and Riggin, his entire life has been a very selfish person where he he even asks his wife why they broke up, not understanding that it was all his fault. And he also, when Sam, when he thinks that Sam is using again and he finds that, that little joint... He he at he tells her he says why are you doing this to me like he's saying why are you doing this to me so he's not thinking about his daughter he's not thinking about his wife he's th- all he cares about is how things affect him and he takes 
and he he victimizes himself. So no matter what the situation, no matter what the conflict is, he always acts like he is the victim, and other people are attacking him. This is such a fun topic because actually, Iñárritu says that um, this idea he he got this idea when he turned fifty, right? And he started this um, crisis about, and it's probably something that happens a lot um, in this situation: the fear of being forgotten you know the fear of not doing something good enough or just being remembers medio mediocre I don't yeah, know. yeah 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 mediocre okay cool great um so i think that's that's great and and people who actually are related to this film i don't know like theater actors or movie directors or producers or writers i think they all feel so connected to that film because of that, you know, they know that it's, it's something that happens eventually. And, and even when you have accomplished something great in your life, maybe that's not good, good enough for you. Like maybe he did Burma and that was a big success and everybody wants to do Burma again, but he doesn't want to do that because he knows that's just like a medium level. He knows that for actors and, and people who are in this, um, in this same category, uh, that's not good enough. That's 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 just not great. That he he needs to do something great because otherwise he's not gonna be respected by by this um, coworkers. And and the flaw with Reagan, which I think how you you illustrate at the end of the film when he repairs his relationship with his daughter and his ex wife is his entire motivation for his whole life is wanting to be remembered by the world. So wanting to be remembered, but if he's remembered by the world for his artistic success. It comes at the expense of being forgotten by his family, and so I think he's try he's trying to grasp like which is more important: be remembered by the world or to be remembered by my family. So I think he he realizes which is more important by the end of the film. Yeah, and that all ties into the opening text that Inurito puts at the beginning of the film, which is a quote from Raymond Carver, who the play who wrote the play that the movie and the play that he's making is based off of. And the quote is: "And did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so, I did." And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on this earth. And I think, again, the connection with his daughter is the beloved. That's what he's feeling now is now he thinks he wanted respect and admiration critically and from audiences and from the world for art. But really all he wanted was love from his daughter. Actually, that's that that just gave me the cue to clap um, Emma Stone. I think yeah. she did great in this movie. I, actually, a fun fact um, they say that she was the one who mistakes the had, made the most like, mistakes. The most, yeah, make the most mistakes um, along the film. And this, um, damn, I can't, I can't think of his name. Um, Zach Galifianakis. Yes, yeah. he was, he was great. They say that he didn't made a mistake barely at all in the in the whole movie. Yeah. Um, I, I, ironically, fun, Emma but, Stone got the Oscar nomination for supporting yeah. actor. Yeah, well, I, I think she did great. Yeah. I think it, uh, it was it was a great um, it was a great character, and I love the scenes uh, when she's in the in the rooftop and she's talking to the actor, which I also Shiner forgot. Mike Shiner Mike Shiner, yeah. Um, and he says, "What did he, what what did he did he do to you? You know, like wh what was so wrong that you hate your father?" And she's like, "Well, he was never." like around he was like is that it is that is that why you hate him and she kind of realized at that same moment that it was 
not that bad. Mm. It was bad probably, but couldn't could be worse, you know. It was just a guy who was working for for her and probably his wife. Yeah, she yeah. I think what what she realizes is that um she's maybe placing too much blame on Riggin. And also I think her best scene is when she has that she shouts at Riggin when Riggin confronts her about the weed and she basically tears Riggin apart in one minute by saying that no one cares about you. Um, you don't even exist because he's not adapting to modern technology. He doesn't have social media and that the whole play is a charade and nothing's going to come from it. And I think she just opens up in Riggin all the self-doubt that he's been trying to bury inside and she makes him realize how unimportant he really is no matter what he does. He's still just like a speck in the universe, and he's yeah. not as important as he thinks he is. Yeah, it's a great point. In that scene, I think that's that Sam is kind of humbling Riggin and bringing down his ego and his arrogance. And and Mike Shiner does the same thing to him too, where he Riggin realizes that he's not even close to the talent that Mike Shiner is until the end of the film. He gives that great performance, and also Mike Shiner, you could say with the with the scene Santiago just brought up on the rooftop, he also kind of humbles Sam in a way and and takes away her animosity a little bit from Riggin to realize that. Although he wasn't there, he wasn't there during your birth, and he wasn't the best father, he's still a father. He's still there for you. He's still helped provide for you in your life. So I think all these characters are kind of humbling each other, and even Mike Shiner gets humbled towards the end of the film, too. He's kind of like this catalyst that starts all this action going on, too. Yeah, and also when Riggin hands Mike Shiner that uh, bar napkin with the author's signature saying that he gave a great performance— uh, Shiner points out that if it's on a cocktail napkin, that means the author was drunk when he saw Riggin perform. So, <laughs> so maybe, yeah. so maybe Riggin isn't as good as he thinks he is. Yeah, but also Shiner maybe isn't as poor as he thinks he is because in that scene also yeah. he's talking about how he's like. Shiner's like, I own this town. I'm what matters here. And then someone comes up behind them and asks for a photo of Riggin. So and that they co- ask Shiner to take the photo. Yeah, so Shiner yeah. takes the photo. So they're all kind of humbling each other. Because he in says a way. no one cares about Riggin, and then that happens right after it. <laughs> and so that funny. plays with the idea. So which is more important? Which do people care about? A famous Hollywood actor or a theater actor that no one's heard of? Yeah. And that scene, that's one of the funniest beats for me. There's like a handful of very good jokes in that movie. That's yeah. one of my favorite. Then the other one is where Riggin looks in the mirror. He says that he looks like a turkey with leukemia. <laughs> Die every time. <laughs> Actually, I think one of uh, my favorite scenes in the movie, it's when Regan wakes up after he passed out on the streets. And you see Berman, right? You see Berman behind him. And he kind of accepts the idea of um, being Berman again. He's like, we can, like Berman says, like, we can take over this. And then explosions start to happen. And the helicopters. And they're just mocking um, Michael Bay and, and superhero Marvel, movies. yeah. Yeah, Marvel. Um, they say that it's kind of similar, like pornographic action and I love when Berman, out of the blue, it breaks the fourth wall and start talking to us. They're like, "Oh, look at the look at their eyes. They're shining. They love this action shit. They don't even care about this um, philosophical bullshit." Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's such a good moment in the film because you're you're captivated by that. Eventually, when when that happens, when you see this guy yeah. flying and talking to you and exploding, you're like what is happening so i think they have they have a good point yeah i think he's saying that you know it's great to enjoy theater but it's also important not to act smugly about art because just because you know theater might be a more 
you know, philosophical and artistic kind of performance doesn't take away that. So what if a lot of people love superhero movies? Like the, it's not up to one person to decide what's art and what isn't art. Yeah, I think the film is a satire on both the pretentious nature of the theater world versus the commercial sellout world of, of Hollywood. And one of my favorite lines in the film that kind of ties into that is where Riggin says popularity is the slutty little cousin of prestige. So mm-hmm. they're both kind of hypocritical and they're opposites of each other, just like Shiner and Riggin are opposites of each other. Mm-hmm. And I think they both, repre- they both represent those worlds where Riggin's the pretentious actor and, and Riggin's the commercial sex- success actor. And I think, yeah. obviously, I think one of the highlights of this movie um, Production-wise, it has to be the score, um, the drum score by this oh, by that's this amazing. yeah by the drum. I can't remember his name, um, but he the score he used it perfectly tr- illustrates the character of Riggin in terms of the chaotic nature of his mind and the the looseness of the film itself and how just like jazz drumming, it seems like the the pacing of the movie is unrelenting. It never slows down and it's always surprising. And I think that. Having a, an improvised drum score for the movie really tied the whole movie together. Yeah, Antonio Sanchez, he's did a great score. Unfortunately, he didn't qualify for an Oscar because it wasn't the. They said that it wasn't the complete score of the film because there's other moments where there's music and classical composing that composes it. If too. there's music that's not by the composer that's used in very important scenes, it, it will disqualify the, the composer from being nominated because. Like you said, they they use a, they use a lot of pieces from classical music in vital scenes in the movie, um, and there's one that's repeated a few times, and so that's the reason why he didn't get yeah. nominated. But he did win a Grammy, and he got nominated for like Golden Globes and, and yeah. BAFTAs and everything like that. But it's a fantastic score, and it reminds me so much of Whiplash, where this jazz drumming is just like mm-hmm. keeping the energy of the film the whole time. Whereas, but I mean, in Birdman, it's unrelenting. And then the magic realism, where they actually show the drummer twice in the movie. Yeah, like, and he's actually that, in I the. Think yeah. that's- one of the highlights of the movie, yeah. you know, like syncing, like synchronizing the, those parts of the movie. It's so hard, like mm. doing a, a sequence shot. And then when you see him, he's playing exactly where you're listening to it. It's not as simple as it looks like. Um, so I think it's great. I, every time I see the drummer, I'm so excited. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. pumped. Like, yeah. And I think it's a good um, metaphor about jazz and, and how like jazz is improvising and, and, and the plays are like all, all this story that we're looking at it, it's just another um, play that we're watching, right? Besides of the play in the movie, the movie itself, it looks like, and it feels like a play that's being improvised along the film. And the fact that you're listening to this jazz, upbeat drums, um, which the, 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 the fundamentals of jazz is improvising. It just ties all the, all the film together, as you said. Yeah, yeah that ties totally. into film and theater where every performance and every scene is different each time versus a film where that's the take, that's the cut and that's forever lived on. But every performance is unique. Mm-hmm. Want to do some superlatives? Yeah, let's do some superlatives. And, and also what do you guys think happens at the end? Do you think he flies away or do you think he's dead? Do you think he committed suicide? I, I think that it's um, another form of magic realism where he's finally discovered what the, what, what is, what he should be really living for, which is his family and his relationship with his daughter and um, I think that's what Sam – it's illustrated magically, but I think that Sam is seeing Riggin accept um, the, what what really matters in life. I kind of agree with you. I just think it's, um, it's a metaphor about um, his success and the potential that he has. And now his daughter can see that as, along with the rest of the world. Like they know that he's 
a good actor, you know? Yeah, I think he's on the medical bed the whole time. He never jumped. I think he just looked out and, like, it's it's his subjective magical reality, which is his daughter seeing him fly. I think I think mm-hmm. that's a little bit of what's going on, like what you just said. But, mm-hmm. all right, let's do some let's do some superlatives. So, let's start off with, who do you guys think the MVP of this film is? That's a hard one. I would say it's Michael Keaton because he gives an incredible performance. See, the, the movie is really carried by his by his performance, the camera's on his face so much and he translates so much of what his character is thinking and feeling. And I think that uh, everyone kind of forgot about Michael Keaton. And then when they saw this movie, they remembered how much talent he has and why he was a big star. I really think Edward, Edward Norton. Yeah, he's, he's great. He's my favorite. He's great. Like, he, I just, when he, when he's on the screen, I can't stop looking at him. Yeah, he's magnetic. This is my favorite Ed Norton performance. Yeah, probably. I think. He's fantastic yeah. in this movie. Yeah. yeah, as 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 a performance, I think, like, he's my favorite. Um, the character, I think, um, the 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 one Michael Keaton is doing, I think it's the most completed, probably, because he has so many things in his head and, and debatating about... Um, his family and his work and and not being forgotten but also doing a great work and and being watched even by martin scorsese in yeah. some point when when this guy says like he's gonna be there. oh really <laughs> yeah, yeah so they like with those little things you can tell like he cares yeah. you know like he says that he doesn't but he he does care and he just wants approval he wants approval from the audience wants approval from the media he wants approval from his family he wants to everybody say like you know everything that you've been doing you're right and you and you accomplish it i think it's emmanuel lubeski just because the complication of the filmmaking and and how much the cinematography adds to the story and everything and i think he just knocked it out of the park with this movie it's, yeah. it's so impressive to watch it deserve the it's oscar incredible. Yeah. um do you guys have a favorite uh scene in the movie my favorite scene i would say is which you mentioned earlier is when after Riggin gets drunk and he passes out on that on those steps and he wakes up and Birdman he's finally accepting Birdman and allowing him to take over. I think that's a, a, such a big turning point in the movie, and it, I think it the character of Riggin changes in a positive way. I think the movie gets a lot more fun after that. I have this scene when it's the first time we see Edward Norton um, on the play, right? That he's just been in the stage mm-hmm. and Michael Keaton goes yeah. there and they start improvising these lines. And I think that scene's so good. He, <laughs> Edward Norton makes this face after he changed a text and, and, and they see this um, play evolve and it gets better. And he's like, <laughs> it cracks me every what do you time. Think? I think he's, like, he's like, feed me, feed me a line. He like already knows. He's the like, script. forget the script. Come on, <laughs> let's just do something. Let's just do something. I, I think that's my favorite scene. That's I that's think. a that's a great scene. That's very funny. Yeah, I think my favorite scene is when Sam yells at Riggin because I think that's the most that's that's the start of the catalyst for Riggin and his character changing and a turning point for him and and realizing what's important in life. And I think that he needed to be humbled by her to to get that going. Nice. We have three different scenes. Yeah. Very cool. Great. <laughs> um, do you guys have a favorite line from the movie that you can remember or you wrote down? Yeah, my favorite line Ooh. is, uh, uh, which you said earlier, is like, I look like a turkey with leukemia. <laughs> 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 
My favorite um, line is when um, the ex-wife is is talking to him, and he's and she says that you've always confused love for admiration, and that's because he never understood what the difference between them, and he thought that if someone didn't like a movie of his, that means that they didn't like him or love him. Uh, mine, I think it's um, the one that you guys said a little bit earlier. It's the one I kind of – I don't know if I can say it back, but it's um, when he says popularity is the cousin – what, yeah. what what it's successful it's, it's the cousin it's the slutty, slutty cousin, cousin of of prestige. prestige i love that yeah, yeah. i love that i line. think it's so good it's really yeah. good the scene of Reagan running through Times Square in his underwear was filmed after midnight, so the amount of real bystanders caught on camera in the shot would be limited and that the majority of people in frame are hired extras or crew members actually because the movie Birdman was carefully choreographed and rehearsed well before filming the editing the editing of the entire film only took two weeks to do in Birdman, Chef Gordon Ramsay can be seen on a large billboard video screen when Riggin is on the roof near the end of the movie. Chef Gordon Ramsay's mother-in-law is a distant relative to director Alejandro Iñárritu's family. When the director was filming the movie in New York, he would often dine at Chef Gordon Ramsay's restaurant, The London. There's a great hidden clue in Birdman when Riggin is standing on the roof right before he magically begins flying. If you look in the background of the city, there's actually a poster of Man of Steel alluding to the fact that he can fly like Superman. In Birdman, director Inaritu includes paraphernalia from his native land at several points. When, Reg- when Reagan enters the liquor store, the walls are covered in Christmas lights, which are in the form of Mexican chili peppers. When Reagan is walking in his underwear on Broadway, the sound of the famous tamales, oaqueños, that are sold in Mexico can be heard. In the final scene, the sound of the car that sells camotes is, all- that sells camotes is also clearly heard. All right, um... Should we move on to, let's do a quick intermission and then we'll move on to The Revenant. How's that sound? Cool. All right. Intermission time. Let's do it. Which is brought to you by our friends at Manscaped. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping from Manscaped.com. All right. Let's do our intermission, which is just a fun little trivia guessing game where each of us will ask the others a question. So we got questions for you too. So I'm going to start with the movie quote competition. So let me know if you guys can guess what movie this quote is from. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss Ferris it. Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he got it. <laughs> I feel, I feel, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose in every single one. So. <laughs> so, in the Matrix, does Nia take the blue pill or the red pill? Red pill. Oh, he takes the red pill. Yeah. <laughs> that was an easy one. That was an easy one. <laughs> Here's my movie quote. Ready. I ain't ever been no hero. The only battle I seen was was in retreat. My foot got shot off by one of my own men. You try and tell that story to your boy and see how he looks at you then. I know this. Do you know it? I definitely do not know it. <laughs> that's Christian Bale's character in 310 to Yuma. Yeah, that's it. Let's yeah. go. <laughs> yeah, I, I was not going to – You ever, you ever seen that it. movie, 310 to Yuma? No, it's really not. it's a great it's a, western. It's a western remake, yeah. and it's Christian Bale and Russell Crowe the lead actors. Yeah, and it's fantastic. Really I recommend it. James Mangold, who made Logan, uh, he directed that. Yeah. So good. All right, I love that movie. Yeah. I love Logan. All right, guys, guess this movie release year. Oof. Okay. What year did Point Break come out? Oh, Point Break. <laughs> <laughs> guys, I suck at this game. Oh, hold on. <laughs> let's, take, let's take a guess. Take a guess. The original um, Point Break, not the new one. Okay. Um, what? It's Young. 89? Uh, close. I'm going 19. 
1980 no 1991 yeah yeah <laughs> wow i was pretty close actually yeah no, you were close. close yeah the way i figure i try to do is i just like work back the actor's career and like where yeah. they were totally i almost did 92 i was like uh, <laughs> all right what year did die hard come out that's so funny because my pop quiz question is die hard <laughs> you should know you're, was... just, you're just on the imdb page then <laughs> Uh, so that's in, that's in the eighties for it sure. It has to be the eighties. I'm 80s. not saying anything. Yeah. Die Hard's. I'm gonna guess. Nineteen eighty-eight. That's it. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Nineteen eighty-eight. Yeah. <laughs> I swear I didn't even look at it. We can we can share that point because I just said the night the the eighties. Yeah, he, so you I, wouldn't have said eighty-eight if, if he didn't say eighties. <laughs> no, I knew it was the eighties. Come on, sure you did. he had a gun on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. True. <laughs> yeah, you could smoke and bring a gun on a plane. <laughs> All right, mostly movie, cool trivia question. All right, this is a movie pop quiz question. All right, so in this is funny. In Die Hard, what is the name of the building that John McClane stops the terrorists and robbers in? I know oh, it. I know that one. I know what. Uh, Nakatomi Plaza. Yeah, there we yeah. go. There we let's go. go. Let's go. <laughs> That's a good one. That's so funny. We both did Die Hard once. It's called being a twin. <laughs> All right. So I actually related this to um, Emmanuel Lubezki, who won three Oscars in a row. Um, what there's a, there have been a few actors that have been nominated for three acting Oscars in a row consecutively. Bradley Cooper is one of them. He got nominated wow. three years in a row. What three movies were they that he was nominated for? Yeah. Silver Lines Playbook, mm-hmm. American Hustle, American Sniper. Great. I'm a genius. I, I didn't win. think you would get American Sniper. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what happens when you when you underestimate me. <laughs> 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 All right, that was fun. <laughs> so let's move on to The Revenant, which came out in 2015, written by Alejandro and also Mark L. Smith. This film won Best Actor, Best Cinematography. Best Director stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hardy, Donald Gleason, Will Poulter, and Forrest Goodluck. A frontiersman on a fur trading expedition in the 1820s fights for survival after being mauled by a bear and left for dead by members of his own hunting team. I just want to start saying that he this movie deserved every single award that it was nominated for. They deserve it all. It's so good. If you're... If you're a director, if you're an actor, if you're a producer, if you don't know anything about cinema, this is just a masterpiece. I understand why some people might think this is a, a slow movie, right? And some people might get bored because, you know, um, we're all different. But I really think this is this is such a piece of art in every single way, makeup and hairstyle, production design, cinematography, directing, writing, um, acting, I think everything in this movie is gorgeous. So I just want to start saying that I'm a big fan of this movie. I agree. I can't believe it didn't win Best Picture. I expected it to that year, but it didn't win. Alejandro won. Totally. Uh, DiCaprio finally got his first Oscar, and the guy had to go through hell to do it. Um, <laughs> he should have won <laughs> for Gilbert Grape. Yeah, he should have. Um, but actually, the shoot was so difficult that DiCaprio took four years off from acting afterwards. His next movie was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So he, was, just, he took a long time off because like it was such years. a brutal shoot. And what Alejandro accomplished was it seemed to be impossible because of how they made the movie. Because they didn't do any studio work. They didn't do any green screen. Um, they shot on real locations. They shot in Canada and Argentina um, because as the shoot got delayed, 
they had to move down to Argentina because it was still snowy there and Canada warmed up. And Actually, they shot in Argentina in the, in the lowest part in Argentina, mm -hmm. which is Tierra del Fuego, right? And Ushuaia. So that's the lowest part in Argentina. That's like as low uh, as you can go. Yeah, yeah. that's probably and then the it's lowest Antarctica. you can go. Yeah, the, uh, uh, yeah, like a little bit um, under that, you have the Islas Malvinas. Which is that's a political topic over there because actually they're from Argentina, but hmm. it was a war between um, um, Graham, um, well, I don't know, British, the, the British island. I don't know how you say that. Yeah, like England. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, oh, Great Britain back then. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, so, but this part is probably gonna be cut, so it doesn't matter. Well, Britain, um, Britain tried to take everyone over. Yeah, they, <laughs> they did a lot of colonizing. <laughs> yeah, so we had a war, but yeah, under the, the Tierra del Fuego, you have um, Islas Malvinas, right? And under that, yeah, you have Antarctica, but it's it's freezing there. It's nothing but super nice um, nature and, like, Landscapes, but in, and in terms of the cinematography for this movie, it's amazing how how beautiful it is and how how incredible it is. And I think everyone would be surprised to know that uh, nearly every single shot was shot with natural lighting. They they only use artificial light in one scene, and it's during one of the campfire scenes because the fire and the wind was getting a little too out of control, and they couldn't control the fire. And so Lubeski put up a, a set of bulbs on the flames to keep a constant warm light on the actors. Otherwise, they couldn't see anything. And other, otherwise, other than that one shot, there is not a single artificial light used in the entire movie. I think that's insane. Yeah. I just, I, I, I really think that, um, if I'm not mistaken, they choose to film this movie in digital mm -hmm. and not in film because they have one more hour of light after the, um, after the sun was down, right? Yeah. So they were like... Because they were shooting everything in, in natural lighting, that one more hour was a lot of time for them. And that's why they choose digital instead of film. But I think that's such a big achievement for Lueski that it's it's insane. Shoot everything in natural lighting and make it seem not just good, but gorgeous. It's I think that's that's insane. What I think that shows is that he what they're showing is you don't need all the lights in the world to make a movie. And especially to win the Oscar for Best Cinematography. But, so I think that they, they Lubeski and uh, Enrito, they know that you don't need to have studios, you don't need to have screen screens, you don't need CGI to make a great film. And so they prove that with this movie. Yeah, it makes it feel so real. And they actually shot this film in chronological order, which is very rare to that do. That never happens. Most yeah. movies are shot all over the place depending on scheduling and when the actors can come in when you get the set. So majority of the time it doesn't happen. I think they, had, they did it probably because of the makeup design for Hugh Glass's character, probably to keep it, make it a little more efficient, and I'm sure the locations they, they were doing too. I would say also maybe um, Alejandro wanted to base how he filmed the movie based upon what they filmed like the day before, mm -hmm. and especially with long takes, and I think maybe he wanted to feel be a little bit more improvisational with his filmmaking rather than storyboarding everything before they get to film um, to maybe just have a more free-flowing uh, cinematography and direction for it. Yeah, which is incredible because some of the shots in this movie are almost every shot actually is a work of art, but some are exceptional. And it's like they did this on the spot. They didn't storyboard this. Like the morning when 
when Hugh Glass wakes up from living sleeping inside the horse's carcass, and there's this beautiful shot of him standing, and he kind of like thanks the horse in a way by touching it, and the That's sun's the, yeah, the sun's just shining through, but. It's blocked by these trees, and, the, and there's a large tree that's dripping with water from melting snow, and it's just one of the most beautiful shots I've ever seen in my life. And they probably were just like, this is where the sun's going to rise. This is going to look amazing. Let's just shoot it right here. That's actually correct. They based most of their blocking and set design um, based upon where the sun would be at certain times of the day. Yeah, and so, I mean, they, they took an entire film crew and cast, and they went into the middle of freaking nowhere. To film this movie, yeah. so they had the elements. They're dealing with with constant snow and blizzards, freezing cold temperatures, and the environment. It's just it's just fighting back every way, kind of like how the environment is fighting against Hugh, Hugh Glass's character the entire film. Of course, if you if you just think about the BFX in this movie, you can totally think in in the bear fight, right? That's yeah. that's the first thing you you, you think of. Um, but besides that, they spend like about around thirty minutes of the film. With BFX, it was just like some clean plates and arrows and snow and some muscle like flashes. Yeah, yeah. For an example, like like the like basically all the animals that show in the in the movie, they're um, CGI. And there's actually one funny shot um, close to the end of the movie when you see DiCaprio um, shirtless. And he was not skinny enough for the character. <laughs> yeah, so they have to, um, like, with BFX, make him a little bit skinnier because this this character has been by starving hell in Earth, right? So yeah, he 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 should be a little bit skinnier than he looked. If I'm not mistaken, we should definitely check that no, fact. That no, I'm you're, totally. You're totally- you're totally right because I remember, cool. like, because they were shot. There are always footage, footage and shots of DiCaprio at like events and or like on his yacht partying, and he always and he had that beard and long hair, so you knew he was shooting the Revenant. But he had like a dad bod. <laughs> he was yeah. a dad bod. He's very skinny, so I totally, I could, I definitely think you're right for sure. I don't think Leo yeah. has ever worked out for a movie role before. <laughs> he Not doesn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> he's well, never he in shape. He doesn't need to. He doesn't yeah. need to actually. He's, he's like, in with sh- yeah. his performance. Nobody cares. Yeah, he's in shape for, for hanging with those models. That's it. Yeah, he can get any girl in the world he wants. He doesn't have to have a perfect body. <laughs> totally. And this whole this whole movie, it's about nature. and It's also about human nature and. Nature, it's trying to kill Glass the whole time, and it's also trying to kill the other characters. But in a way, nature never we never see nature kill anybody. No one gets killed by nature. No one gets killed by the freezing cold by animals. It's just humans who kill humans. And so the human nature versus nature, and it shows that even in the harshest climates and the most hostile environments of these battles and these this trade war, you could say, humans are the real threat. Versus nature. Yeah, especially Fitzgerald, played by Tom Hardy, which is an, a great underrated performance of his. I think that he's an, a, fan, a fantastic villain in this movie. And I think that I love his accent. I love his, physical, his physicality. And he actually was cast in Suicide Squad, if you remember. there were, He was cast as that, as I think um, the leader um, that Joel Kinnaman eventually yeah. played. But he had to drop out because the production of this went twice as long as they were expecting. But I think that he will obviously... People will remember this movie much more than Suicide oh, Squad. I'm sure that was a blessing in disguise for him because that movie is trash. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I think DiCaprio rejected it doing Steve Jobs, actually, yeah, right? In yeah. the same moment because they were like doing the same set time. Um, but before that, this movie went to two different directors, and the first director chose Samuel L. Jackson to play this role of Hugh Grass. 
And after they changed that director, and that was like, okay, that that's not going to be an option. It was Park Chan Wook. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. the Korean Thank director. Thank you, because I, I yeah. suck with names. Yeah. So <laughs> let's just take out of the table. <laughs> um, and the second director that probably you guys know too, um, he was going to cast Christian Bale for this role. Oh, I would like. Oh, that would have been, been good. Yeah, yeah, that would have been great. That would have been good. Yeah. But Hugh Glass is such an interesting character because obviously this is based on the book by Michael Punk, but the book, it's based on the person. Hugh Glass is a real guy, and supposedly some of this happened to him. I'm not sure how much of it is realistic. In the film, it takes liberties and a lot of freedoms versus the, the book. They Hollywoodize it and make it into an epic story. You know, In the book, he doesn't have this child with, these, with the indigenous read that with the Pawnee tribe but in this film he does have this child with the Pawnee woman and and his son Hawk is is so important to him because although Hugh Glass is this ultimate survivor and he's he's a guide for these fur traders what's most important to him is his family and they show that with a lot of these beautiful shots of him like holding his son as a child and his wife and Unfortunately, he's not able to protect his wife from the fur traders and, and the colonizers, the Europeans who come in and burn down their tribe. And since because of the death of his wife, which has been haunting him, his whole goal in life obviously is to work and, and support his son by guiding these fur traders, but also to protect his son. And when he's not able to do that after the bear attack, his whole purpose in life from being a family man and also a survivor changes on a dime. And now his entire path in life is built on revenge against Fitzgerald. Yeah. It was important to have the son because, like you say, it's not in the novel. He's just a, 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 a tracker on his own, um, living a solitary life. But having Hawk and and his and and his and his spouse is important in this movie because otherwise the tale would just be Glass getting revenge for revenge's sake, and it kind of doesn't have the right motivation. But when he's motivated by the loss of his son and tracking down the man who murdered his son. That gets the audience behind his entire journey for enacting revenge and gets us on his side and kind of hoping that he finds Fitzgerald eventually. So I think having Hawk gives us that personal relationship with Hugh Glass and also gives, puts us on his side of the situation for wanting to kill this man. It gives him it gives him a reason to want to live because a person who goes through what he goes through with this bear attack, how he survived, and he talks about with his son, as long as there's a breath inside of you, you keep fighting. And that's shown him with the bear attack. Who would just give in and let the bear kill them? I think 99.9% of people would just be like, all right, bear, just slit my throat, end it, and I'm just going to bleed out right here. But he keeps fighting, and he ends up, even though he's getting attacked, he gets his rifle prepared and shoots the bear. And then after it attacks him again, he gets his knife out to attack the bear again before it takes him down that little cliffside. So he's a constant fighter. And because of the death of his son, that's what want, that's what forces him to go through hell to survive, to get that revenge. I think that's such a good scene. It's, it's so real. It's so raw. And it's so violent, but it's so good at the same time. It's just nature. Um, and he's fighting for his life. And as you said, um, the motivation for him to at least be alive and get against this bear is just to take care of his son, right? Because um, he knows that he's in the middle of this people because he's living this duality, right? About his life as a, as a Native American and his life as a now a hunter for the colonizers, right? So he's in the middle of these two worlds. And I think the movie is not just against um, against human versus nature but it's also about the people who was there in that land 
before this new colonizers came in, you know, like French and and and, and people all over and destroying the, this land when they were like so respectful and they take care of that land, these Native Americans. And these guys just came in and and ripped everything apart. Yeah, right? they're killing and all the animals. Yeah, exactly. And they're not being respectful respectful with the nature something that you can see that hue glass is and not <clears throat> this um tom the tom hardy character he's like totally the opposite he doesn't care about the nature of the people that lives there or anybody he has no respect um about the people the animals or the nature itself that's living there actually the the just I'm just gonna take this out of the table too. Um, but Tom Hardy was gonna be the the character of Tom Hardy was gonna be played by Sean Penn. And I, I didn't know if you guys oh, know that. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. That would have been also interesting. But I love Tom Hardy, so I yeah. really I'm glad that he did it. There's yeah. actually that's a great point you make about how how Fitzgerald views um, the Native Americans. Like he calls them savages, and he has no respect for them. And he was scalped by one of them, so obviously he has that that hatred for them. But he he always had that hatred for them. But there's a great little moment. Where it shows the the irony of him, where when he and um, the young boy are walking through that burned down uh, Native American village, and he finds a, a pocket watch, and he says, "Oh, they're always stealing our stuff." Saying, that, that it, "I think that line yeah. is crazy so, good." Yeah. yeah, so implying that Native Americans are always stealing these Americans, these the Americans' items. Where the irony of that is that Americans are there stealing everything from the Native Americans. So it's a yeah. a, a, a great moment. And shows the the irony in the ignorance of of characters like Fitzgerald. Yeah, yeah I think the yeah, the yeah. most telling or the most artistic shot that Inuritu and Lubeski get to kind of show how the colonists, when they came in, they just destroyed the resources of the land and of the indigenous tribes that were there, of the Pawnees and of the Re, is the shot in like the dream sequence where. Hugh Glass is is walking and he he comes across that that pyramid of buffalo skulls and so the buffalo throughout North America were a robust species. There were estimated to be I think like thirty to fifty million of them roaming and it was the main source of food for the indigenous tribes and they obviously use them not just for food but of of they use the entire body for resources and, and for for tools and, and and shelter and when colon the colonizers came into North America they completely destroyed the the, the species of the buffalo to the point of almost extinction where I think there were at the end of the 19th century, there were maybe 3 million left and it's even more dwindled now, but they're, they're obviously keeping them alive because it's such a beautiful animal, but it, it was a robust animal it roamed free everywhere. And also what they would do is they would kill these buffalo just on the spot, the colonizers and these traders just to control the tribes and the indigenous people there so that they couldn't eat them themselves and the the meat would go to waste and they wouldn't be able to use it. And so it'd, it'd be a way to control their tribes and to deplete their resources that way. So they would kill buffalo, let the bodies rot so Native Americans couldn't hunt them? Exactly, or wow. use them for, them, for their tribes wow. and for their food. Wow. So it's, wow, that's insane. Yeah, so I think the buffalo, it's such an important animal in the history of North America and also of when colonies, colonists came here to basically take over the land. Wow. Yeah, I think there, there's more than just Hugh Glass's revenge that ties into all that. Obviously, he's on the path of revenge to get Fitzgerald for killing his son. But also, you can see that the the Reed tribe specifically, they want constant revenge against the, the Europeans and the colonizers because 
the chief of that of the re-tribe, he's looking for his daughter somewhere, the princess of the tribe. And he kind of uses that as justification for tearing apart any European colonizers or, or fur traders he comes across. And that's his, his constant motivation of, of these attacks and, and just looking for her, looking for his daughter because he wants revenge. And then they even show at the end of the film after Hugh Glass and Fitzgerald fight and Hugh Glass basically just floats Fitzgerald's body while he's still alive down that little creek to the Reed tribesmen, and they scalp him because they don't even know who that is. But they scalp him and kill him as an act of revenge. So there's, you could say that revenge is fueling revenge for all these storylines, all these characters, and all these arcs in the story. Yeah, Glass and, and the Chief, they have the same motivation, and they're tr- like he's trying to find his his missing daughter who could be murdered, and then and then Hugh is looking for the murderer of his son, and so. And what happens in that scene is because both these people are looking for revenge, Hugh decides that he shouldn't be the one that enacts his own revenge and that the the tribe deserves to get more revenge than he does. And so that's why he he passes Fitzgerald off to the chief, I think. That's a great point. Yeah, I never think of that. And I think think that's amazing. Yeah. And that's a a great point. Mm. And I think that what makes this movie so great in terms of DiCaprio's performance is... Uh, the physicality of him, because we talked about this when we talked about Wolf of Wall Street uh, during that Quaalude scene, um, showing off just how great of a physical performer he is, because many of his roles are heavy dialogue, lots of dialogue. So he's always performed well verbally, but with this film, he has very little dialogue. And there's, yes, there's 12, so- 12 lines, I think. In, just in English, they have 12, 12 lines. So that's that's insane. Yeah, no, and so much is physical. Like watching him drag himself across the dirt, watching him deal with the pain of the bear attack, watching him trying to walk with a a leg that won't support him. I think that his immense talent was translated and he showed a new side to his talent with this movie of showing the the physicality of Hugh Glass's character and his journey in this movie was why the movie works so well. Yeah, he goes through hell. He suffers for us in this movie. And the bear scene is just one of the most horrific things I've ever seen. They film that with with this big guy who wore this giant blue bear suit. And they obviously digitally imposed a fake bear. It wasn't a real bear. But just just the, to watch him get torn apart, get torn <laughs> apart to pieces. And then just how did the makeup department not win an Oscar? Because every shot of, of Hugh Glass's wounds, I'm just sick to my stomach. Especially even when he's in like the tub cleaning, at, getting clean at the end. And when he's talking to uh, the captain at the end, just like his lips are just like torn apart. And yeah, destroyed. so chapped. So like, yeah. so the make- I really think the makeup, makeup, it's it's insane. It's yeah. a movie. Like, you can see through the through the wounds. I, I think there's one scene when he's drinking water and the and the blood is coming out from his throat. And I think that's so graphic, but so good to feel like you're there and you're like actually feeling like him. And it's like, oh my God, that could be, that should be awful. I know. I, yeah. What makes the bear attack so incredible and so memorable is how they depict it. Because like in any other bear attack movie where a bear attacks a character in a movie or it, it's very quick. You know what I mean? It's like the bear just attacks and like swipes them, and um, the, the scenes are always very short in terms of the attack. But the attack is like five minutes long, and it's actually very um, authentic to how a bear would interact with its prey in terms of uh, disabling it, um, investigating it, smelling it, um, t- just playing around with it. That's something that animals do. They'll play around with their prey. We have a cat who will do that same thing. And yeah, so, he tears you apart. Yeah. And so <laughs> so animals, they have this tendency to not just kill right away. 
um, and to toy with their with their prey. And I think that's why that scene feels so real because it seems how a bear would really act in a situation rather than just you know swiping the throat and killing their prey. It's they they draw it out and that's and it's prolonged. And I think that's why it's such a strong scene. Well, actually, I think they based that attack in a video uh, with a video that a guy, a drunk guy, fall into a cage of a bear. Um, oh my so god! So that was recorded. Yeah, that at was a zoo? recorded. Actually, yeah, at a zoo, and he falls into the cage. Um, and that that video is, I haven't seen it all, of course, because it's quite raw. But um, you can see how the the bear smell his back, and he's like attacking him from the back when he's laying down. So they base that attack in, with that video. Um, but something actually more important than that is how the this analogy in this, um, there's some shots after when he gets into the horse, right, mm-hmm. to survive. Uh, but he's being super respectful with nature. Um, so he gets in and then he thanks the horse when he's out, as you said. But if you pay attention to that, to that shot, it looks kind of like a like he's being rebirthed, you know, like he's like yeah, like the horse reborn, yeah. to yeah, exactly. He's to, reborn to, multiple to times in this yeah. movie. Yeah, he's reborn totally. it when he's uh comes out of the grave and he starts dragging himself out after Fitzgerald and, mm-hmm. and Will Poulter's character leave him. So even though he's kind of buried alive, he drags himself out of that grave. Yeah. So that the idea, the theme of rebirth happens multiple times in this movie for sure. Yeah, and the, another rebirth is when that Pawnee tribesman who's on his own, he saves Hugh Glass by trapping inside that that makeshift shelter during the blizzard. So he, and then he's reborn again through that, through that, and that's his bear hide that he 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 has. And that actor, he actually based that he he actually built that based upon his own grandfather's teachings his grandfather used to be uh, uh involved in native american medicine and that was something his grandfather actually would do and so he based it upon his grandfather's teaching and the film crew loved the idea and implemented it into the movie yeah and just two more things on the bear i love how hugh glass starts to wear the hide of the bear and it's left for him and and will poulter's character makes him that necklace of the bear claws so it kind of signifies the strength and survival of hugh glass but also bears are terrifying if you guys have ever seen like they look cute because all their fur and they look cuddly and they look nice but if you ever seen an image of a shaved bear it looks like a demon i swear to it's god so muscly it's, it's yeah. not it's not even that muscly it's just uh, terrifying just it looks like a monster it looks like a monster it like a demon you're right yeah they look cute, but oh my god, I would never want to be near a bear. Yeah, bears are the most some of the most lethal animals on the entire planet. They're, and I think that we underestimate how big they are. They are massive beings, and they should not be messed with. And <laughs> whenever I've gone camping a few times, and I've always just had in the back of my mind, like I hope there's no bears nearby. <laughs> he's just part of this big, huge world that we live in, and he's not that important. I think that Inarritu represents that just by letting, but but he being a little bit. A little piece of the ecosystem that we live in, you know. That's yeah. exactly. It's not that yeah. close. It's not like yeah. And he actually Alejandro does that on very important moments. So that horse moment when he falls off the cliff, Alejandro doesn't show him land or fall through the tree or anything. He just keeps the camera up in the bird's eye view. And then also even more telling is when he and Fitzgerald are running when when Glass is chasing Fitzgerald. Um, Alejandro, he doesn't keep the camera on them while they run. He keeps the camera hundreds and hundreds of feet away, and you can see just trees in front of them, and then they're like little tiny specks in the frame chasing each other, where any other director would be right there with them running. Alejandro keeps it back because he's showing how big 
and massive nature is and how small mankind is within it. Yeah, and also Hugh Glass is very much like the indigenous tribes in this film where he's connected to nature. He's part of nature. He gets that that relationship that human beings have and he shows respect to nature throughout the entire film, whereas the, the fur traders, they have no respect for nature. They're tearing apart the animal species. They're getting their fur. They're fur traders. They, they only care about their pelts. They're chopping down trees. They're building boats. They're making fires. And, and although Glass is part of that culture and that society in terms of working for them he's also part of nature and hawk kind of symbolizes the the combination of both those peoples and both those philosophies and you can say glass knows glass teaches him that no one will will respect you because of the way you look because you're you're an indigenous person to them and the way you look they'll treat you differently and also hawk has the burn scars on his face which you could say represents the scar that the colonizers are having and are causing on the on nature and the actual scars from when yeah. they took over his tribe. Yeah, exactly. And also, what I think this movie does really well is in in Hollywood cinema, um, it's gotten a lot better now. But if you think about westerns in the fifties and sixties, and just the way Native Americans were represented in fin- in film and cinema, they were always shown as being this uh, these killers and these these villains and these very brutal and aggressive people. And although, yes, every culture, every civilization, they have histories of tribal warfare, and yes, Native American tribes fought other tribes, but for the most part, they were very peaceful people. But the way Hollywood always depicted them was as being these horrible villains. And then what this movie is showing is that even, yes, battles occurred and Native Americans did attack these uh, European um, people who entered the land, Um Alejandro shows motivation of why, why these Native Americans would become aggressive with these people, why, why they're defending their land, why um, this chief is looking for his daughter, which who was kidnapped. And so I think Alejandro shows motivations to help you empathize with Native Americans that we never really saw um, before the like 1990s, 2000s. Yeah, I think Tom Harry's character Fitzgerald represents the opposite. He, re- he represents the 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 evil nature of coming into these, these lands and taking over the resources and and burning down these tribes. Yeah, and because Fitzgerald, he's a, such an interesting character and he's such a great antagonist because he he's so selfish, he's arrogant, he's greedy. He only cares about himself. He only cares about getting paid. He's been scalped before, so he has that hate for the indigenous people there. And he stays behind with Will Poulter's character to to see Glass's fate through, but he only does it for the three hundred dollar bonus that he's going to get because he cares about he only cares about that. And his intentions, you can tell, at some point he was probably going to try to kill Glass at some point to get as, away as quickly as he could. And the first thing he does when they get to, to to when they stay there is he starts digging the grave aggressively, and he's already getting ready to put Glass in there and he, because and he also doesn't understand. Why Glass just won't let himself die. He's trying to explain to him, it's going to protect your boy. Just let yourself go. What are you holding on to? But because Glass is a survivor, and and, and his boy would never stand a chance without him. Yeah, and Fitzgerald thinks thinks that they had an agreement where he did that blink. I don't think it was an agreement, and Glass never saw it as an agreement. I, I, I love the fight between Fitzgerald and Glass. It's so brutal, um, and they really do a lot of damage to one another and also it's a great knife fight knife fights often in movies they don't seem very realistic and it's very hollywood eyes and this one it feels like it's like they're wrestling half the time and it felt very authentic to what a real knife fight would be like yeah just as soon as the blade is close to any of the bodies i'm like oh my god i'm yeah. cringing inside. And he chops his fingers off yeah it's just you know like you said it's realistic and it yeah. feels like an actual knife fight what it would look like what but- do you think happens at the end of this movie do you think that he that glass is um taking his last breaths 
Or do you think that he is going to survive this entire endeavor? It's tough to tell because he definitely gets the knife wound in his leg, which obviously he's been through so much pain already and like trauma and, and the slashes from the bear. But it seems like that knife could have hit his femoral artery in his leg. He could be bleeding out. I think that he's going to keep surviving. I don't think it's him dying at the end of the film. I think that he he sees his wife um, as a as a metaphorically ending to the movie saying um like okay it's fine to come with me now you know like you did what you had to do um this is probably it i don't i don't think you will keep surviving um i have no doubts that he could but i think he's gonna give up eventually and come to his wife and his son but the movie does end when it cuts to black yeah you hear his breathing yeah for a few more seconds and then in the film multiple times both Hawk and Glass say, as long as you have breath, you can keep fighting. So that could be a metaphor for he's still breathing, so that means he can still fight. Yeah, I love how on. they break the fourth wall right there. But yeah. it also reminds me of Gladiator, where he just lets himself die to be with his child and yeah. his wife. So maybe he's going into oh, the yeah. afterlife. So it's kind of similar ending. Great point. He's, he's achieved what he needed to achieve. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree with you with the, with the part of the breathing. If he keeps breathing, he's still alive. Um, and he's going to keep fighting. But... It's hard to tell. Actually, I think it's up to everybody's, um, you know. Uh, Just like Birdman. It's ambiguous. Exactly, yeah. We get to decide. Yeah. All right, let's move on to some superlatives and finish up The Revenant. So who do you guys think the MVP of this movie is? I would say it's um, Alejandro Iñárritu because of how intense and complicated the shoot was, um, how they changed continents, um, just how big the production was. His ability to film everything with natural light uh, and the use of no green screen, uh, CGI only for things like animals and arrows. And just his direction of the entire story, I think it was just a monumental achievement in directing. So I give it to him. I will have to share with him and and DiCaprio because I think he's completely insane in this movie. And I think they have to share the, 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 the prize, the word. Yeah. Yeah, I think they tie for it. Also, I just want to shout out the entire crew. I'm sure they all went through hell for this film and this production, but also Leo's performance is, is incredible. I don't think it would have been the same movie if any other actor was in this role. I know a lot of their, another great, a lot of great actors could have done a good job, but I think Leo is just one of the best actors to ever live. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the shooting of the movie was 88 during nine months, so it's, it's actually for everybody in the cast that I heard that a lot of people had to quit because of the hard conditions in the movie. And like, I mean, it's, it's completely understandable. They had to travel so much and they waste half of the day of shooting, just traveling to locations and they had to cross rivers and it was frozen and everything was so complicated. Like if it's a complicated movie shoot um, in normal conditions, that would be, that's probably insane. So everybody in that, in that crew just deserves that MVP award, I think. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing how successful it was. It earned $530 million, which is just crazy success. Yeah. Do you guys have a favorite line from the movie? Yeah, I would say when Hugh Glass is speaking to the captain um, after he's um, brought to the camp, he says, I ain't afraid, I ain't afraid of dying anymore. I done it already. That's wow, good. that's good. I- I'm going to take that one too. Yeah, I had that, but I also had um, when he's quoting one of the, ind- one of the indigenous uh, tribes women are talking and she says the wind cannot defeat a tree with strong roots i like that a lot yeah and also uh, the, it's the line that is as long as you can still grab a breath you fight mm-hmm. which yeah. is what he tells his son 
Yeah, yeah. But overall, overall, this is one of the. It's such an impressive movie. I think that's my favorite word to describe it. Every aspect of it is incredible. Um, masterclass in filmmaking. What went into it shows in in the end result of how hard it was to make and complicated. And everyone poured their entire lives and passion for filmmaking into the project. You can tell. Yeah, I think it's cinematic experience overall. And um, besides whatever thing that you can um, say against the movie, like, because I think everybody will have their opinion. And maybe the second act get a little bit um, repetitive eventually. Um, I don't think there's anything bad in this movie or something that someone can agree in. But if you take it as, as, a, as, a, as it is, like a cinematic experience, um, I'll think it blow your mind even more than just taking it as a normal film. Hundred percent. What's what do you think is the best shot in the movie? I still think when he comes, like I said earlier, when he comes out of the horse and it's the shot of him like thanking the horse and just the sun pouring in, and it's just the most beautiful shot in the film. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I have well the the opening sequence for me it's mind blowing. It's in in twelve minutes. I had to to count the the cuts actually. Um, they have just twelve scene cuts in twelve minutes. Right. Um, and you have like maybe in one minute you have three cuts, but in the in the in those twelve minutes, you have scenes were more than two minutes long, and that's not just uh, like Berman one shot, like which is always in the studio and something more. It's more controlled, you know. It's that's that's just a that's just a crazy sequence uh, and a lot of extras and a lot of things going on fights. Um, natural lighting, so I have to take that first sequence, that those first twelve minutes of the film. For me, that's when 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 Iñárritu gets me. You know. Yeah, my favorite shot is when Hugh is walking across that frozen lake, and it's miles and miles large. And the shot starts as this extremely wide shot. It looks like it's on a helicopter, and the the helicopter flies towards Hugh Glass, and it's like a a minute long shot and you can see just how big the lake is the frozen lake and then the camera gets very close to DiCaprio and shows how small he was in the frame compared to how large he becomes in the frame yeah it's a great yeah, shot yeah I that's, think that's a great that's shot great. Both, both, yeah both these movies are incredible Birdman and The Revenant and there's actually one little thing that Alejandro did to connect them is he has this this comet or this meteor crashing yeah. to earth in both films which is really fascinating I think I don't think it means really much in The Revenant besides just like a little nod an easter egg to the bird, to bird yeah movie. I noticed that too but yeah, yeah it's, these these two movies are incredible and they're amazing to watch back to back because they're a lot more common than you'd think and Alejandro and Ritu I can't wait to see whatever his next movie is going to be He's one of the best working today, obviously. Yeah, we said that he must be taking a five-year vacation after these two movies. <laughs> yeah, like, my God. Even insane. more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about we do some Revenant trivia? Let's go. Leonardo DiCaprio chose to devour a raw slab of bison's liver even though he is vegetarian. He also had to learn how to shoot a musket, build a fire, speak two Native American languages, Pawnee and Arikara, and study with a doctor who specializes in ancient healing techniques. DiCaprio calls it the hardest performance of his career. In Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, that famous scene where Han Solo uh, infamously cuts open a tauntaun for Luke Skywalker to sleep into during that blizzard was actually inspired by Hugh Glass, the character portrayed in The Revenant, in which Hugh Glass actually slept inside of a horse to to stay out of the blizzard. But yeah, 
But yeah, that wraps our episode on uh, Birdman and the Revenant. Thank you so much, Santiago, for joining us on this. It was so fun to talk with you and hope you're doing well out there and maybe we'll be able to do this again soon sometime. Thank you guys for receiving me. It was such an honor. I, I, I think um, you guys do a great job with this podcast. I love it. Uh, as you know, I I get in touch with you because I love your show and I just want to um, talk to you, actually. And you you invited me to the show. So that's, that's, that's amazing. I really... Hope that you guys will receive me again. I'll be happy to be here again and be our biggest geeks that we can be. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it, was it was a, a great fun. Time. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah, we hope yeah. you all enjoyed this episode. And thanks so much. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost podcast. Hit that subscribe button and notification bell. Listen to the audio formats of Raiders of the Lost podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast.